0: New, new, new black, new, new black Wall Street Book Club. Evan Jefferson, brother, much love. Educating, elevating, because in knowledge is the power and will never give it up. Literature is for the masses Where to put your money down a how to watch your assets Yeah, uplifting others is a passion My brother Evan, he will turn it into action New Black Wall Street Book Club You should come read with, with, us. Read with us Yeah, we comprehend and discuss yeah. if we all just come together There's no limit for the us, limit for us. Huh. Here comes your host New Black Wall Street Book Evan, Club. take it away Black Wall Street New Black Wall Street Book Club, <laughs> New Black Wall Street Book
1: Club. Welcome to the New Black Wall Street Book Club, where black folk do read. If you put it in a book, we absolutely will find it. I'm your host, ERGJ, your certified financial educator, CEO of ERGJ Enterprises, ERGJ Black Bazaar, and international best-selling author of the book, The Black Billionaire's Club. It's a study of black wealth. It's a study of the 12 richest black people in the world today and how they built their wealth. And I just believe that if you want to be wealthy, you should study. Wealthy People. We can find that book by going to the website www.TheBlackBillionaireClub.com www.TheBlackBillionaireClub.com You'll find that link in the description above or below. The New Black Wall Street Book Club presents Black Fortunes. The story of the first six African Americans who escaped slavery and became millionaires by Shamari Will. Let's read. We're going to get started this morning, guys, with our daily motivation for African-American success. This comes from the book written by Mr. Dennis P. Kimbrough, Daily Motivation for African-American Success. And today we're going to be talking about hope. Uh, With hope, I win. With hope, I win. Everybody put in comments below, hashtag hope. With hope. I win. And today's title is featuring Rosa Parks, and it says this, baby, my feet are killing me. Baby, my feet are killing me. And our quote of the day comes from Miss Rosa Parks, uh, the mother of the civil rights movement. She says this, and I quote, I'm no martyr. I just had a hard day at work. My feet were hurting, and I was too tired to give up my seat. said, I'm no martyr. I had a hard day at work. My feet were hurting. And I was too tired to give up my seat, Miss Rosa Parks. And here's our motivation from Mr. Dennis P. Kimbrough. Let's read. It is often within oppressive circumstances that one gathers hope. Hope is the father of achievement. It reinforces ability, redoubles energy, fortifies existing talent, and increases faith. Armed with the powers of hope, Rosa Parks sat down to that, to, so that an entire race could stand up. Hope places everything within perspective. It was Hope that rescued the spirits of W.B. Du Bois, and as he overcame racism and abuse at Harvard University, became the school's first African-American Phi Beta Capital. It was Hope that propelled Naylor Fitzhugh through Harvard's radically charged atmosphere nearly 40 years later when he became the first African-American to earn a master's degree in business administration. And it was hope that enabled a shy farm girl named Anna Mae Bullock to endure hardship and abuse of marriage. And a roller coaster ride in the music industry today, Tina Turner fills concerts halls as millions jammed to watch her strut her stuff. As our ancestors toil within the cotton fields of the South, Hope was born. As they worked, they composed songs, sorrow songs out of their environment. With eyes of faith, they could look beyond their immediate enslavement and translate hope out of their existing circumstances. Remember, life may not always run smoothly. Life sometimes travels in a downward spiral. Sometimes on the road to success, we get weary. Our feet hurt. It is during these trying moments that we must fill our hearts with hope. It is during these trying moments that we must fill our hearts. With hope. And here's our affirmation today that we will repeat over and over again today as we uh, get a little bit of this in our spirit. And it goes like this repeat after me. I read the last chapter, I read the last page. I know with hope I win. I know with hope I win. Well, brothers and sisters, I guess the great question is, do you have hope today? Uh, we are beginning a new year. We're in the seventh day of that new year, that new decade. Do you have hope for the future? Our affirmation of the day repeat after me. Again, I've read the last chapter. I've read the last page. I know with hope I win. How many guys found that to be true in your life that with hope, you win. Have a brighter outlook, optimistic for your future, knowing that uh, you're heading in the direction that you want to go, knowing that all things work together for your good. I know, with hope, I win. That's Daily Motivations for African-American Success by Mr. Dennis P. Kimbrough. Daily Motivations for African-American Success by Mr. Dennis P. Kimbrough. Hey, my beautiful people here on New Black Wall Street Book Club. That was our affirmation appetizer. And we're going to get right to the meat of what we uh, have been going through and we're now finishing today. Uh, It's really a great uh, moment when you actually finish what you start. And that's a great thing. I know we're a little bit uh, lengthy in completing this. But the point is that we uh, we went right along through it and we'll be finishing up today as we're going through the book. A quick word from our sponsor. Don't just buy black, decorate black. ERGJ Black Bazaar is the Afrocentric marketplace, and we specialize in urban home decor. Anything from shower sets to wall tapestries to debate cover sets, you can decorate your entire home with original black art-inspired gifts. Check us out at www.ergjblackbazaar.com www.ergjblackbazaar.com ERGJ Black Bazaar, the Afrocentric marketplace. We make group economics easy. Black fortune The story of the first six African Americans to escape slavery and become millionaires. Black fortunes. The story of the first six African Americans to escape slavery and become millionaires. And we're into chapter number 20, which is uh, titled Paris by way of Harlem. Paris by way of Harlem. And this will conclude our journey in this book here today. So, chapter 20, Paris by way of Harlem, part one. What's going on? Uh, Let's get it. In July of 1906, in July of 1906, after the trial of Hannah Elias. Two apartment buildings on West 135th Street in Harlem were purchased by an anonymous buyer through the Afro-American Realty Company for $400,000, or $2.7 million in today's term. A few days later, notes were slipped under the doors of the white families in the building. The notes told them to vacate their homes within 24 hours and that in the future the dwellings would only be rented to respectable colored families. After the tenants got their eviction notices, the papers how white tenants evicted by Hannah Elias. An article published in the New York Evening World read, Hannah Elias, the Negress that got 685,000 from Ralph John R. Platt, was jarred, has jarred a goodly part of Harlem by ordering all the white tenants out of two big flat buildings. The article concluded that her move was part of a larger plot. This indicates that the wealthy colored woman will make a colored settlement out of one of the choicest neighborhoods above 125th Street. Elias denied having any part in, building, in the building purchases or the evictions, but she had indeed begun investing in Harlem with a handful of other powerful African Americans. The upper Manhattan neighborhood was nearly all white, but changes were afoot. It stretched from the top of Central Park at 110th Street, 50 blocks north, toward the 60th Street. Backing up the deep woods that surrounded Fort Washington, the area was dotted with farms, Victorian mansions, wood-frame homes with lawns, new brownstones, and empty lots on a grid of tree-lined streets. Andrew Green, the New York City planner, who, whose murder Elias was in, indirectly been involved in, had facilitated development of two elevated trains that connected Harlem to Lower Manhattan. When the commuter rails had opened at the turn of the century, they had set out waves of migration to Harlem. The first migrants were white Manhattanites, Eastern European European and Italian immigrants. They were followed a few years later by middle-class African-Americans. Blacks began moving to Harlem with the help of an African-American real estate developer named Philip A. Payton Jr. and his company, the Afro-American Realty Company. The first African American migrants to Harlem came from Greenwich Village in Manhattan and Brooklyn and met resistance from whites as soon as they arrived. Their presence is in- undesirable among us in Harlem. An entry in the New York Indicator, Manhattan Real Estate Journal stated, adding that blacks should be segregated with some colony in the outskirts of the city, but that transportation and other problems will not inflict injustice and disgust on other worthy citizens. As the Afro-American Realty Company helped Blacks move into Lower Harlem, neighborhoods white citizens organized to prevent Blacks from moving deeper in. Led by John G. Tyler, a white separatist, Harlemite, and real estate developer, a slew of anti-Black, anti-integration proponents quickly began to organize. The Save Harlem Committee, Anglo-Saxon Realty, and the Harlem Property Owners Association. After Blacks rapidly moved into Lower Harlem after the opening of the train station at 125th Street in 1905, whites focused their efforts on preventing blacks from encroaching higher, drawing a line at 130th Street, which served as a broader border between integrated and non-integrated Harlem. In 1909, white Harlemites successfully lobbied the New York Public Library on 135th Street to ban blacks from using the facilities. In 1912, a group of wealthy white industrialists, including the department store magnate Endurin, Van der Hush Coast forced the eviction of black tenants on 131st and 132nd Streets and blocked a black movie theater from opening on Lenox Avenue near 130th Street. Although some elite African-Americans such as Elias had luck early on buying property in White Harlem above 130th Street, as the white residents organized, others found it impossible to penetrate the upper portions of the neighborhood, which had wider streets and larger homes. In 1911, John Nail, one of the top agents of the Afro-American Realty Company, left to form his own real estate business. In his new endeavor, he had one very wealthy client of note, Hannah Elias. Nail was a handsome man with brown skin, a round face, and curly brown hair who wore wore bespoke suits and highly polished shoes. He came from a prestigious family and was the brother-in-law of the NAACP's James Weldon Johnson. He and Elias became friends after her trial. With his smarts and, and clients like with his smarts and clients like Elias, Nell had a plan to begin to bypass the color line at 130th Street and become the biggest real estate agent in Harlem. Nell had a secret weapon. His pastor, Reverend Hutchins C. Bishop. Bishop presided over St. Philip's Episcopal Church, of which Nell and Elias were both members. With his olive-colored skin, blue eyes, straight nose, square jaw, and straight brown hair which he slicked tightly back, Bishop could pass for a white man. He was descended from free blacks in Baltimore and considered his church a high church, recruiting upper-class African-Americans such as Elias and Nail to flock to his flock. St. Philip's Episcopal Church became famous among African-Americans during the Civil War draft riots in 1863. More than 100 black New Yorkers were killed by mobs and the property of famous African-Americans such as Jeremiah Hamilton and James McClune Smith was attacked. During the riots, thousands of blacks sheltered in St. Philip's, which had stone walls and thick wooden doors. In 1906, as his flock swelled to more than 1,000 souls, Bishop decided to move to a larger church in Harlem. In 1906, Nell and Bishop sold his church building in Hell's Kitchen for $600,000 or $16.2 million in today's terms and purchased a new church on 135th Street in White Harlem. Bishop went by himself to purchase the church and put the building into his own name. Looking into the reverend's sparkling blue eyes, the sellers never imagined they were selling to a black man, let alone a large black church congregation. After purchasing the church, Bishop and Nell brought six more apartments in White Harlem, using the same scheme. After Nell established his own company with Elias' financial backing, he deployed Bishop as a straw buyer, gobbling up dozens of property. Once they acquired the properties, uh, Nell began renting and selling them to African-Americans. His first customers were upper-class African-Americans from the neighborhoods of Williamsburg and downtown Brooklyn, where he had grown up. Nell sold them lots for $1,000 or $3,000 to build homes on. After the draft riots, affluent African-Americans, many of whose family and businesses had been attacked by mobs, had fled Manhattan to Brooklyn. Nell successfully recruited dozens of affluent black families back back to Manhattan, promising them that Harlem would be a haven for blacks on the island. Later later, he bought and built apartment buildings and rented apartments to working class African Americans, who were turned away by white landlords in other areas of New York. Between 1911 and 1914, he bought up more than $1.1 million or $27.6 million worth of property in Harlem. With help of Elias and Bishop, he helped break the color line at 130th Street and turn Harlem into a bustling black enclave. So here, brothers and sisters, we have, um, uh, I guess, the rise of Harlem. And we got probably got some brothers and sisters who are living in that area. What's going on, man, Mr. Uh, the, good, the Cool People's Network? Good day all first week. In, oh, it's first week in New York. Fantastic. Uh, we have the the rise of Harlem. And so this is after, uh, I guess, obviously after Tulsa, Oklahoma, and the, 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 the debacle that took place there, or in the in the midst of that time frame. Uh, but you still had Hannah Lass, was a big part of what was going on in New York, and uh, you had an African American real estate company who went up, who basically went and bought up the property using a straw man. A straw man is just basically someone you go through. Who uh, who can uh, who can be accepted by your buyers or by your sellers? And in this particular case, it was a black man who looked like a white man, uh, and they used that bishop to be able to buy a property and then uh, sell those lots off to African American uh, African American people, who then began to uh, flood this new city, which we now we know as Harlem, which is different than the Harlem we know today. But at that time, one of the one of the biggest bustling black enclaves at the turn of the century. And that was actually uh, uh, Paris by way of Harlem, part one, as we uh, continue to go through the book, uh, Black Fortunes, the story, the first six African-Americans to escape slavery and become millionaires. So let's move on into part number two uh, as we continue along uh, learning more about in our last chapter of Black Fortunes as we're talking about Harlem. Let's get it. Uh, After their affair and resulting scandal, Elias' ex-lover John Platt stayed in New York City and moved to Upper Manhattan, living with one of his daughters. I've got to stay and face the music, he told his friends and family members. He appealed the decision to dismiss his blackmail charge against Elias in court, but lost. He remained estranged from her after taking her to court, but kept tabs of her activities in the papers. He ran stories about her whenever they were published. In 1908, he died of a heart attack. At the age of 89, he left nothing to Elias in his will. She knew better than to attend his funeral. Platt's estate was worth $10,000 or $270,000 at the time of his death. It seemed that the former millionaire had transferred the majority of his wealth to Elias during their affair. In 1910, Elias left her mansion at Central Park West and moved to this penthouse of an apartment building she owned on 113th and Broadway with her butler, Cato. In Harlem, she did not have to shutter her windows or hide her face behind a veil. For a time, she felt free. After a few years, the knocks on the door began. As the best-known wealthy black woman in New York, she was constantly hassled by people looking for charity and sheriff's deputies serving her with lawsuits. She was sued by lawyers and contractors who said she owed them money for work they did for her. She bought a parakeet that she kept in a golden cage, which which she screamed at when she was upset, and spent hours at a time beating and taking out her frustrations on Cato. In time, she began to seclude herself in her penthouse the same way she had in her mansion so Hannah Elias um if you guys remember uh you know uh, built a lot got a lot of her wealth through John Platt who she had a, a, an affair with who was a, a wealthy black man and um she got to the point where she had lived amongst whites and never felt comfortable living amongst them because she was the only black in town uh so she uh, uh she she tried to change the way that she looked she tried to fit in she tried to be white uh, she never really loved herself and that for a time in Harlem she felt like okay this is this is what's this is what's up I can be free amongst my own people but she soon found out that even though she was amongst her own people, still being very wealthy brought more problems. It brought problems of people asking for money, begging and it brought the other problems of people suing her for money uh, which uh, she found out uh, through her time here in Harlem. So Hannah Lyons, man, I'm going to be going back through talking more about Hannah Lyons. Her story is just, it's just, it's just phenomenal. She, she just never really got to a place of being truly, truly free, but that was part two. <laughs> that was part two of chapter 20, Paris by way of Harlem. A quick word from our sponsor. Now it's going to part three. Let's read. In 1914, at the beginning of World War One, Nell entered the U.S. military as part of a cohort of African-American men who hoped that Blacks, Participation in the armed services will help the cause of racial equality by demonstrating that blacks were patriots. Nell was part of a group of African-American soldiers deployed to France during the war. When he returned to Harlem at the end of the war in 1918, his company continued to sell houses to African-Americans and build apartments. Nell, like many other African-American soldiers, was disappointed as he read about continued lynchings and voter suppression of black newspapers as the syndicated cause of Ida B. Wells, uh, and the syndicated columns of Ida B. Wells. In 1921, as he was returning hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions of days of Hannah lives and profits, the race rise in Greenwood hit the papers. On June 10th, the New, Age, New York Age, Harlan's paper of record, carried the headline on its front page Oklahoma Whites attempt to destroy entire Negro section, extra 75 dead, both races, many wounded. In the months after the riots, a handful of African-American survivors from Tulsa showed up in Harlem. Nell helped them get settled and found them apartments. Harlem became a destination for the black elite, with Madam C.J. Walker's family moving to the neighborhood in 1910, and Robert Reed Church's son, Thomas Church, moving there in 1919. So Harlem became the place in... uh, early 1900s around 1919 1920 where all the black people wanted to go live uh, so we had we basically kind of migrated we went from south to the west to tulsa and all that stuff went down in tulsa with uh with black wall street then we migrated uh, i guess that would be northeast to new york and harlem and that was uh that was the rise of the uh the Harlem, I guess you could say, probably the Harlem Renaissance. I guess is where we're going here. That's where we move into that age of that of that time. So that was uh, Paris by way of Harlem, part three. Now, now let's get into Paris by way of Harlem, part four, and then we'll do. Ooh, we'll pro- we'll do the epilogue as well, and then we'll finish out this book. So the Paris by way of Harlem, Part Four. Let's read. In 1923, Elias decided to leave the United States. She took a car to New York Pier and waited for a cruise liner that would carry her to Europe. She was accompanied by Cato, her butler and loyal companion. Elias planned to travel to France, where Nell had friends from World War One who had stayed in Europe after the war deployment. Black ex-soldiers stayed in Mont- Montmartre, a Bohemia on a hilltop overlooking Paris, where people from various backgrounds lived together. When the ship arrived in New York Harbor, Liza and Cato boarded and sailed off across the Atlantic. Some people who knew her said she lived too old to old age in the south of France. Others said she died in Paris a few years after arriving. One rumor says she had taken a million dollars with her. Others cited the numerous lawsuits against her, insisting that she had she would have been down to her last penny by the time she left. One thing no one can disagree on is that she disappeared. When the newspapers learned of her departure, they went to John Nell's office and inquired about his business associate's whereabouts. Nell told them nothing other than Hannah Elias had left. Elias had finally gotten what she wanted. No one could bother her, wherever she was. No one could bother her. Wherever she was. So Hannah Lies, uh, that was the last, I guess, known whereabouts of Hannah Lies and her interesting story. And she uh, hopped on a boat. Maybe went to Paris. Maybe didn't. Maybe was still rich. Maybe wasn't. uh, But she disappeared. And she finally got what she wanted. And no one could uh, bother her anymore. So that was actually chapter 20, guys, of Black Fortunes. The story of the first six African Americans to escape slavery. As we uh, wrap up uh, this book, uh, we're going to read the epilogue and then we'll be done. Black is again, the story of the first six African-Americans to escape slavery and become millionaires by Mr. Shamari Wills. Uh, our epilogue, let's read. As fate would have it, uh, the, no- the nominal wealth of most of the individuals profiled in this book faded after their deaths. Yet their legacies endured. Mary Ellen Pleasant left a large estate worth nearly three hundred thousand dollars, or eight point four million dollars, when she died. But she had no heirs to bequeath her fortune to. Her only daughter, Lizzie J. Smith, died when she was a young woman in San Francisco years before her mother. Pleasant's estate was consumed by her numerous creditors and complaint and complaint complainants. After she died in 1904, Robert Reed Church left hundreds of his residential properties in the Bill District of Memphis to the children of his first family, Mary Church Terrell and Thomas Ayers Church. At the time of their inheritance, the values of the properties were declining, due in part to Bill Street itself, which was once again being maligned as a black slum in Vice District. Mary and Thomas thrived despite their diminished inheritance. Mary became a teacher and a prominent suffragette and civil rights aggregate, activist. Thomas became a lawyer and publisher. Robert Reed Church left the bulk of his liquid assets to a second wife and a church and their children. Annette Church and Robert Reed Church Jr., who used their father's bequest to maintain the family's commercial property business on Bill Street. Church Jr. leased property to clubs and concert halls as Bill Street became the mecca of blues music eventually serving as a launching pad for W.C. Handy and B.B. King. In doing so, he was part of establishing the black entertainment industry, which today is responsible for the majority of black America's very richest entrepreneurs, including Oprah Winfrey, Bob Johnson, Sean Combs, Tyler Perry, and Kathy Hughes. Church died in 1952, leaving one daughter, Sarah Roberta Church. When she died in 1995, after a career working as an administrator for the federal government, she was the last known surviving direct descendant of Robert Reed Church Sr. O.W. Gurley had most of his wealth destroyed in the fires and violence of the Tulsa Race Rise in 1921. Afterward, he moved to a four-bedroom house in South Los Angeles and opened a small hotel that he operated with his wife, Emma. Gurley had never, was never able to rebuild his wealth to the level it had reached in Tulsa. The couple had no children, left a modest estate to their extended family members. Hannah Elias disappeared from public life after she moved to Europe. What she did after she, after she expatriated is still a mystery. Nonetheless, her most notable achievement was helping co- convert Harlem into a black Mecca. Today, Harlem remains one of America's most prominent black neighborhoods. When Anna Malone died of a stroke in 1954, she left behind a diminished state worth approximately $100,000, about $900,000 in today's terms, coming after years of expenses from the management fees of her company and the expensive divorce from Aaron Malone. As she had no children, her estate was split between her nieces and nephews. Many of the industries these men and women pioneered are still relevant today. Real estate, which played a role in the development of the fortunes of almost all the dynamic personalities in this book, is still an outsized component of African-American wealth. Since Reconstruction, black people have, on average, as a group, invested a larger percentage of their net worth in real estate than any other group. There may be many economic or social reasons for this, but perhaps one in particular is that for African Americans, owning one's land after toiling tirelessly over it as a slave, farmers, and then sharecroppers is an affirmation of liberation. That being said, the 2008 financial crisis dealt a blow to this economic tradition as African-Americans were disproportionately affected by both the fraudulent lending practices that helped create the crisis and the foreclosures that resulted. Today, the black home ownership rate is around 43%, nearly the lowest for african American and moder- Americans in modern history. Madam C.J. Walker's and Adam, M- Annie Malone's businesses created a black hair and beauty industry, which today is worth nearly $700 million. Surprisingly, the black hair industry today is not dominated by African-American companies or even any American companies, but rather by foreign firms. South Korean and Chinese companies that manufacture products like wigs, hair extensions, and chemical straighteners dominate the black hair sector. The trend, however, may be reversing as more black women are choosing to wear their hair naturally. This is Danny Malone advocated more than 130 years ago, Mary Ellen Pleasant and Jeremiah Hamilton were pioneers of black stock and commodity traders. They paved the way for investors like Robert F. Smith, who today is one of America's most successful investors and is worth nearly $3 billion. African Americans have historically underinvested in the markets, doing no small part to the legacy of Jim Crow era black bans on Wall Street, which early black investors like Jeremiah Hamilton. Mary Ellen Pleasant and my great-great-uncle John Ma Drew had to circumvent just to get in the game. In recent years, the racial investment gap has been closing. Despite this progress, black investment managers are still underrepresented with only a little over 1% of all assets in the United States being managed by black brokers and firms. During their lives, Mary Ellen Pleasant, Robert Reed Church, Ottawa W. Gurley, Annie Malone, Hannah Elias and Madam C.J. Walker were pioneers and inspirations to other African-Americans and their allies, while to others, they were oop, oop upenders of a racial social order. Slavery and Jim Crow were not just social at- atrocities, but also economic institutions meant to create a marginally compensated black labor class. As enslaved slave, African-Americans became paid tenant farmers after emancipation, Their wages were garnered by plantation owners. Blacks who managed to own their farms faced constant racial harassment and threats from white supremacist groups. African-American adventurers were often denied patents or had their intellectual property stolen. Black wealthy class perhaps represented the greatest affront to the racist economic systems of the slave and Jim Crow heirs. It's perhaps for this reason that the six individuals in this book faced assassination attempts, mob violence, threats, Libel and slander. Yet they preserved to contribute to their communities and bring about some of America's proudest moments, such as the abolition of slavery, the suffrage of women, and the establishment of some of the country's most important cities and industries. These individuals' lives demonstrate that wealth can be used as a powerful resource for change in the right hands, if people are willing. The stories of the first black millionaires in America are the beginning of an epic that of an epic that is still unfolding. The journey from enslavement to economic and social equality. Their unlikely lives provided a spark for people just beginning to lift themselves out of bondage, and still serve as inspiration for minorities and women as they strive for greater financial empowerment today. Black fortune. The story of the first six African Americans to escape slavery and become millionaires. This is the New Black Wall Street Book Club, where black folk do read. If you put in a book, we absolutely will find it. And I'm your host, ERGJ, your certified financial educator, and we invite you to join the Black Billionaires Club. Get connected with brothers and sisters who are serious about winning with money, serious about success, and super serious about helping you to accomplish your goals and to build your dreams. Check out the website at www.TheBlackBillionetsClub.com www.TheBlackBillionetsClub.com You can find that link in the description above or below. Make a decision to change the rest of your life. We'd ask that you would subscribe and support this podcast with a small monthly donation to help us sustain future episodes, to improve financial literacy within our community, and ultimately to help us to build the School of Wealth, to build an institution that will teach the next generation about money, and your small monthly contribution can make all the difference. Well, well, we want to say thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the New Black Wall Street Book Club, and we want you to remember this, that it takes a village. And it starts with us. Let's build as we climb together. We all we got, people. And thank God that that's more than enough. Until next episode, you know what time it is. Mr. DJ, hit the music.
0: New, new, new black, new, new black, Wall Street Book Club. Evan Jefferson, brother, much love Educating, elevating, because And knowledge is the power and And we'll we'll never give give it up (laughs) Literature's for the masses Whether to put your money down or how to watch your assets Yeah, uplifting others is a passion My brother Evan, he will turn it into action New Black Wall Street book club You should come read with us us. Yeah, we comprehend and discuss we all just come together, there's no limit for us us. Here comes your host, New Black Wall Street Devin Evan, Club. take it away. New Black Wall Street Book Club. <laughs> mm. New Black Wall Street Book Club.